0: in her gospel harmony uh, is found in three accounts. I'm going to read a conflated account from all three of them. So you can turn to any of the three references there behind me. Um, any three of those will do. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Mark 12, 13 through 17, or Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. I'm going to read a summary of all of those. And watching closely. They sent spies pretending themselves to be righteous in order that they might take hold of him in word so that they could deliver him to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and speak and teach in truth. And it is not a care to you concerning anyone. You do not receive faith, but teach the word of God in truth. So tell us, what does it seem to you? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Might we pay them or not pay them? But having perceived their wickedness, he said to them, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show to me the tax coin that I might see. They gave him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. Now he said to them, Accordingly, give the things of Caesar to Caesar and the things of God to God. And they were utterly amazed at him. They were not able to take hold of him in the saying before the people. And having marveled at his answer, they became silent. And having left him, they departed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings on this moment of preaching today. We thank you for your word and how it speaks so clearly to so very many different issues And it directs our thoughts in the right direction, directs us to you. May we sit at your feet and learn from you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, since we had a week away last week with the conclusion of our week of vacation Bible school, I thought it might be helpful to remind you of our context in our harmony of the Gospels. We have been moving systematically, roughly chronologically, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, studying the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We are in the last week of Jesus' ministry, and the religious leaders' covetousness and their lust for prestige and power and influence and authority is making itself all the more known in very blatant attempts to attempt to throw Jesus down in the popularity polls. You see, the Pharisees would love nothing other than to murder Jesus, but they're scared of doing that at the moment because things haven't gone quite the way that they thought they would. They realize they have to, in some way, shape, or form, try to kill Jesus' reputation before they put him to death. Remember, the Pharisees were seeking out Jesus before he had come into Jerusalem on this Passion Week. They were seeking him out and sending out people to tell them where he was so that way, if they could find him, they could put him to death. But Jesus arrives in triumphant fashion. Remember, riding into town on a donkey and attended by people in the streets (laughs) shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches. As soon as Jesus shows up, the Pharisees and the religious leaders realize that they're not going to be able to just put him away in a quiet fashion. Jesus then enters into the temple, remember? And he clears out all the money changers and the big bazaar that, it, that they had made out of the outer court of the temple. Jesus says that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. You've made it into a robber's den. He clears out all of that. He attends and meets with people there in the outer courts of the temple. We're told even some Gentiles come there to meet with him and try to talk with him. You see all of this going on as Jesus is healing people and teaching in the temple. Meanwhile, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians are all chomping at the bit to rid themselves of Jesus. But they've got to establish some sort of grounds by which they can do so. If the crowds won't help them in the endeavor, then maybe they can catch him in some sort of unauthorized, illegal belief or behavior and get Rome to do their dirty work for them. And so now you start to see how this plot Is starting to unfold. What we're in the middle of is a bunch of questions that are going to be put to Jesus in which they're trying to trap him. Trap him in saying something wrong. They started off, we saw this a few weeks ago, because there's an interlude between the questions, because Jesus tells a couple of parables. But a few weeks ago, they started off by asking Jesus in public blatantly, by what authority are you doing these things? The idea was that the Sanhedrin hadn't authorized Jesus to be doing the things that he was doing. They might have in mind these things could have included things like cleansing the temple, which is a pretty big act of authority, right? Um, So they're wondering, where did you get this authority from? Jesus answers their question, in typical fashion what Jesus does, with one of his own questions. He answers their question with a question, and he asks them, John's baptism, from where was that? Was it from men or was it from heaven? It was a brilliant question. This question was aimed right at the heart of the religious leaders' problems. Because they knew instantly that should they say that John's baptism was from men, then they're going to find themselves at odds with the very crowds they're so worried about. Because the crowds thought that John was a prophet. And so if they say, no, he was just from men, he wasn't from God, then the crowds are going to turn against the Pharisees in an even further fashion. The very thing they don't want to see happen. They want to try to destroy Jesus' credibility with the people, not destroy their own credibility with the people. So they can't say that. It's not a a duplicitous motive. They know what they actually believe, but out of a duplicitous motive, they say that they don't know. Because, you see, the alternative was to say that John's baptism was from heaven. By which they reasoned in their mind, they knew exactly where Jesus was going with that. Jesus was not just avoiding their question here. There was a lot more going on. Jesus, They know where Jesus is going next, because if John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus' next question then would be, well, then why didn't you follow John? Why didn't you go out to John? Why didn't you be baptized by John? For that matter, why didn't you follow me? Because John the Baptist testified to me. And I was baptized by John. Oh yeah, by the way, when I was baptized by John, if you're looking for credentials, here's some credentials. My father spoke from heaven and said, Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What further credentials are needed? You see, they don't want to go down that track at all. And so as a result, they lie. And they say, we don't know. Jesus, after having stated this, tells a couple of parables. The parables are aimed right at the hardness of heart of these religious leaders. He talks about a group of tenant farmers who um, arrogantly don't give the owner of the land the crops when he comes to get them, even to the point when the owner sends his own son, thinking, well, surely they'll honor my son. They kill the son and throw him out of the garden. And then Jesus, right after that, tells another parable, the parable of a king's wedding feast. He's having a feast for his son. And time is, is, preparations are made, and it's time to come and get it. The dinner bell is rung, and no one comes. So they go out into the streets and they invite others to come into the feast, and the king levels judgment upon those who wouldn't come to his son's wedding. The good news in that text is that the invitation is open to all and to anyone. And the wedding garments that are needed are made available as well. But should you reject God's gracious provision, you will get the judgment that you deserve. God's justice will be met. So all of this has been stated. Jesus has just gotten through with all of this. And so it's almost like as if the religious leaders, they have to shift to a different subject. I mean, they won't repent and they can't answer Jesus's question. So the line of reasoning involving ecclesiastical authority, by whose authority are you doing these things? They have to abandon that line of reasoning. You know, perhaps you've experienced this with discussions with someone who's lost before. You start into a discussion, you get into some really good questions, they can answer them, and so they just change the subject. Or they, they bring up a supposed contradiction in Scripture, and you show them how those, that's not a contradiction, and they just instantly jump to another thing, right? And so that's what we see these Pharisees doing. They're not willing to let it rest at that. They're just going to move the subject to a different one. And that's what brings us to the text that we're looking at here this morning. There's a second line of questioning, and this one involves civil authorities. Okay, we tried religious authority. That didn't work out too well for us. So let's move on to political matters. That's sure to get some heat going in this place. If they can't beat Jesus with the religious authority, then perhaps they can cast him as a political zealot or as a religious traitor. And so they team up with the Herodians and they send a group whose goal is to trap Jesus in a no-win question regarding how Jesus, how the Jews are supposed to behave under Roman rule? A question with political repercussions. Jesus' answer here in these texts provide us with a tremendously helpful principle regarding the intersection between religion and politics. How does our knowledge of God and God's Word inform our political orientation, our sense of duty and responsibility as citizens, with governing authorities and the laws that they make? It's a very important question and it's one which we cannot surely exhausted in one time together here this morning. I'm just going to, you know, touch the tip of the iceberg, as it is said. But at bare minimum, what what I hope to achieve here this morning is to get us to think more deeply about that relationship between religion and politics. How do these intersect? How does a Christian live out his or her faith on earth as presently citizens of an earthly kingdom, yet permanently citizens of a heavenly better kingdom? How do we do that? How do we live in the here and now in reference to where we're going, in reference to where we're headed, in reference to our eternal, heavenly citizenship? Some purveyors of etiquette say, never discuss politics and religion at the dinner table. Well, this is certainly not the dinner table, so that's good. And this being a sermon, certainly you're going to hear something about religion. But today we're going to talk a little bit about both. Jesus had to be ready for a question involving the intersection of faith And government. And so we must be ready for those sorts of questions today. There are a good many political situations which are present with us today that call us to reflect upon and consider how we would respond to these sorts of questions. What is a Christian's role in our present context? We live in a country that has seen much prosperity over past years, yet seems headed toward economic collapse. Just this past week, we know that municipal authorities in Detroit declared bankruptcy. The largest city in the United States history to ever declare bankruptcy. And some believe that this is the beginning, just the beginning of other cities that are going to do the same. We live in a country involved in large political conflicts that involve significant social, ethical, and moral issues. Are people entitled to health care? And if so, who pays for it? What form of taxation is fair? Should the IRS even exist? Should the federal government be able to run massive deficits, plunging our country into further and further debt? What is the legal definition of marriage? Should homosexual unions be considered an alternative lifestyle or sin? Should women be allowed and helped in the abortion of babies? Should we protect human life no matter what their age or condition? In other words, should babies in the womb and the elderly in their last days and the physically and mentally handicapped be Afforded care and dignity like other human beings? These are all questions in which our faith and the political situation we find ourselves in intersect. And we need to have answers to these questions. We should be ready for these sorts of questions. And we need to respond not only with truth, but with tact. And Jesus shows us both on this occasion. My purpose in bringing up all these issues is not to answer them all in one foul swoop. I couldn't do that this morning but to show you just how important our thinking on this matter is. How should we behave in this world as we wait for the one that is to come? How does our citizenship in the new heavens and new earth translate into living in this one? So in a sermon entitled Religion and Politics, I'm going to consider the scene with three descriptors. I'm going to look at three steps through the text, and use using three descriptors to kind of just walk us through the event as it unfolds. So the first one is an appalling scheme, Secondly, we'll look at the amazing solution. And then thirdly, the awestruck silence. So first of all, let's consider the appalling scheme. What we have before us is a nefarious plot. The Pharisees put together a cunning plan. They know that Jesus would expect them to continue their attack against Jesus. So guess what they do? They do what any cunning, crafty individual do. They concoct some camouflage. They select some disciples to pose as earnest, zealous, conscientious followers of Jesus, and then they provide those individuals with some prepping, with some discussion, some words that they ought to say to Jesus, and a question that they need to approach him with. The idea in all of this is to take Jesus off guard by getting him to make an off-handed comment or a remark that to just a, you know supposedly just a few men who are just looking for some ethical direction. The Pharisees know Jesus is going to see us coming. He knows our hearts already. He's already confounded us many times. So let's get a little band together, a little group together, and let's send them off to Jesus and make them play like as if they're followers of his. And then let's get them to get Jesus off guard and ask a question and see what we can do with that. Now, what's interesting is that this group of Pharisaical disciples are joined by a group of Herodians. The Herodians that are joining with these Pharisaical spies as their name suggests, are supporters of Herod's rule in Jerusalem. This is a very strange alliance, but Herod and the Pharisees had seemingly come to the conclusion that uniting for the purpose of getting rid of Jesus was of mutual benefit. The Herodians were very worldly, the Pharisees were very otherworldly, but again, both were way off the track. But both had no problem uniting together in common hatred for Jesus. They decide, hey, we can do something together because we commonly hate Jesus, even though we hate one another as well. They hope that maybe maybe Herod here is thinking that he can squelch a Jewish uprising, he can win Rome's favor by doing that, and also win the Pharisees' good favor by helping them out with a problem that they're having a struggle to get rid of. This is a very strange alliance, but we see strange alliances occur between people who are otherwise enemies because they have a greater foe before them. What's really cunning about this plot is that the Pharisees, if they tried to play off genuine concern about this and really wanting to learn from Jesus, they knew that Jesus would see through it. They knew that Jesus would see right through their little, their little play here. So they get somebody else to go instead of them, some of their disciples. But then they also know if they do get Jesus on the record saying something like, don't pay taxes to Caesar, if they go to Rome, Rome probably won't believe them. Because the Pharisees didn't have any good feelings towards Rome, they wanted—they themselves didn't want to pay the tax. So they know they can't go to Rome, so what do they do? They team up with the Herodians, who would be viewed as someone who was supportive of Rome, and they could go and bring the case before Rome. You see how there's a lot of cunning and craftiness engaged in this occasion before us. So they approached Jesus. And they approached him with flattery. Notice the flattery that these supposed disciples put forth. They first of all address Jesus as teacher, rabbi. They address him as teacher. And then they tell Jesus, we know, listen to this, that you are true and speak and teach in truth. And it is not a care to you concerning no one, for you don't receive anyone's face. Now, that's the literal reading of the Greek. What he's saying there is that you don't play favorites. You don't say one thing to one face and another thing to another face. You don't allow the face of the individual to dictate what you say. So you don't play favorites. You don't show favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. You are truth. You speak and teach truth. You don't show favoritism and you teach the way of God in truth. How many times is truth being brought up in that phrase? They explain that they know that Jesus is committed to truth in such a way that he doesn't play favorites and he doesn't play sides. Jesus has truth in his very being. We don't normally say something like, you are truth. We don't say a statement like that. We might say, you are truthful. We might say something like that. But in their culture, that was a statement that could be made. It meant that it was just, it oozed from every pore. This is inherently who you are. Jesus, you are truth, they say. He can be relied upon to say what is right. He won't compromise his answers to fit in with a certain group. Unlike many politicians, Jesus always spoke truthfully, honestly, and with integrity. He was utterly committed to God's way and communicated God's will faithfully. Why do they say all these things? Well, it's a bunch of sweet words that are meant to disarm Jesus' suspicions by making these men look like friends to him. It's, it's so they're trying to kind of butter Jesus up here for the question that they're about to ask to make him look, to make themselves look like they're friends of his. And then beyond that, they're also appealing to Jesus' forthrightness, saying, You're someone who always speaks the truth. You give us the truth, you speak genuinely, you don't just play favorites. So speak it truly here. They're trying to coax out of them a response that they can use against him. The interesting thing is that these descriptions are true, even if they are insincere. Even though these men might not believe a thing of what they've just said, the statements that they've said out of their lips are truer than they even believe. This flattery is enough to make us gag, isn't it? I mean, especially when it revolves around truth. Like, everything they're doing is a lie. But they keep promulgating, you are so true, Jesus. You speak in truth. You speak the way of God in truth. You're all about truth. And the whole time, they're all about lies. So they think they can catch Jesus precisely because he won't employ deception or doublespeak. In other words, Jesus won't do what they have no problem doing. They think they can catch him because he's genuine and real and truthful. Jesus wouldn't say one thing to one crowd and another to another crowd just to aid in his popularity. So they think they've gotten the perfect thing because no matter what Jesus will answer with the question that's coming, they'll have him trapped. Obviously, these rebels don't really know who they're dealing with because Jesus sees right through this. But the occasion provides us with an opportunity to reflect in our own life upon the danger of flatterers. Do you know the Bible has warnings about flatterers? Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a, a, a net for his steps. The sad truth is there are many flatterers in the world around us. Some might be co-workers of yours. Some might be neighbors of yours. Some might be friends of yours. And they find that getting their way is through the avenue of flattery. Psalm 5, 8 and 9. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before you, before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. The psalmist is saying, I need to know your way, O God, because it is true and reliable. Those around me might flatter me with their speech. If this is King David speaking this, you can see how this would be all the more pressing a matter, right? If you're the king, what are people going to say to you in general? (laughs) Nice things, right? (laughs) Flattering things. They might be fearful to say something of correction. So here, the psalmist is saying, it is so important that I be led in your righteousness because of my foes. They might want to put me off guard just by flattery and then stab me in the back. How many political things of that nature have happened throughout the history of mankind? How many... Moments of that sort of thing in personal relationships has happened. King David condemned a man explaining in Psalm 55:21, His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. See, David, David had insight into this individual. His words looked really good, but behind all of that was a lot of cunning and craftiness and wickedness. Romans 16, New Testament speaks of the same reality. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own at- appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. This is not just an Old Testament struggle. It's one that we today deal with as well. There are many flatterers with smooth speech that would love to deceive. And so the best armor against such things is knowing and having the Word of God in our hearts. Jude 1.16, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. There are many under this situation. There's a need for discernment There are wolves in sheep's clothing. So what do they do? They flatter Jesus. And then they put out a baited trap. The combination of this Pharisaical and Herodian influence brings them together for a test that they're sure to trap Jesus with. They ask a question that involves both religious and political considerations and they think they're going to trip up Jesus in his words. The question that they put to Jesus is certainly one that was being hotly debated at the time. If a person, here's the question really, if a person is obeying God's law faithfully, how could that person pay taxes to a pagan king who claimed the titles of deity to himself? You know, we have issues today with taxes, don't we? I mean, there's always complaints about taxes. This is always going on. This we're not, this we're very familiar with. But we're not so familiar with, at least in our generation, of being ruled by a foreign power. So imagine the United States under the rule of Germany right now. And then imagine that, that the whoever, the guy in charge of Germany, also calls himself God. And now they're exacting a tax from us. And that money's going to this supposed king God's treasury. Now you start to get a little bit of a feel of how the Jews are feeling in Israel. They're being occupied by a foreign power, by a king, a Caesar who has taken unto himself titles of deity. In 86, when this tax was first imposed, by the way, this um, this tax that they're talking about was a tax that was on every individual throughout Israel. When it first was imposed in 86, Judas of Galilee in that year fought out against it, rebelled against it, and that rebellion was quickly put down. R.T. France explains that Jesus, being a Galilean, was not liable to pay this tax. Because he wasn't there in Jerusalem, he wasn't born in Jerusalem. So he wasn't liable to pay the tax. So they're asking him as an outsider, one who didn't have to pay the tax anyway, what do you think about this tax? You know, This is kind of like that third-party, um, unbiased, objective judgment sort of, Question. And so they put this yes, no question to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Obviously, the question here of lawfulness has nothing to do with Rome's law, because that was Rome's law. The answer in Rome's law would be yes. Their question is one of a religious connecting with the political. Is it lawful scripturally? Is it lawful in God's eyes to pay this tax to Caesar, who has put this down as a political law? The question is one of rightness and oughtness. Should Jews be paying taxes to Caesar? If they're following the true God, should they give money to Caesar? And the vast majority of Jews were against the tax. As I said before, no one enjoys taxes anyway. But because of all these other things, they didn't like the fact that there was a foreign government ruling over Israel, so they didn't like that political issue. But then on top of that, they didn't like the religious connotations of what Caesar had done. So here's the trap. Should Jesus say, yes, pay the taxes, then the religious and political leaders felt that this would alienate Jesus from the popular opinion. Because popular opinion didn't like the taxes. And they would see it as a sellout. He's not standing up against what's going on here. And in a lot of popular understandings, if Jesus is the Messiah, a lot of them had connected Messiah with an earthly kingdom, so he no longer could be the Messiah, and the popular vote would go away, and then they could come in and murder Jesus. That's the idea. So if he says, yes, pay the taxes, he's going to have problems with the people and we'll catch him that way. And if he says no, which they're expecting him to, they're expecting him to say no, that's why they have the Herodians there, then they're going to bring those Herodians with the charge to Rome and say, Jesus is guilty of treason. He's trying to incite a rebellion against you, Rome. You guys should get him, get rid of him quick before something, an uprising, occurs. Pentecost summarizes the dilemma. He says this, If Christ had legitimized the payment of taxes, he would have seemed to abandon Israel's hope but if he had denied Rome the right to collect taxes, he would have been guilty of treason. So there's the trap. No matter how Jesus answers, so they believe, they're going to catch him. And from the Pharisaical perspective, the best part is that after Jesus does what they expect him to do and say, no, you don't have to pay the taxes, you shouldn't pay the taxes, they're expecting then that Rome's going to come in, kill Jesus, and do all their dirty work for them. Right? Our hands are clean, we're innocent of the matter, and there they are on the outside of the whole thing, and they just then come in afterward, and you know, sweep up the pieces. So this is this is the cunning, appalling uh scheme that's going on. Well, let's look at the amazing solution together. First of all, we have to note Jesus' perception. Jesus smells the trap. He knows what's going on. He's not fooled by the flattery. He's not deceived by the appearance of honesty. This is one of those interesting moments where They've just declared him as true, as the one who speaks truth, teaches truth, knows the way of God, tells that way of God in truth. Certainly, he who is truth has no problem detecting the counterfeit, and he knows that they are that. He who is not easily swayed by partiality and always speaks truth uh, certainly couldn't be fooled by a little misdirection and a little bit of sweet talk. Each gospel uses a different word to describe what Jesus perceives. It's a different Greek word in each account. But all three of them together give us a pretty good, well-rounded description of these individuals in Jesus' estimation. Jesus perceives their in Matthew, wickedness. In Mark, their hypocrisy. And in Luke, their craftiness. He perceives their wickedness, hypocrisy, craftiness. It is all laid bare before him. Jesus knew that these men were up to no good. They came with an evil plan, birthed with evil intentions, cloaked in a facade of righteousness. He knew that behind it all were lies through and through. This is a clear illustration of Jesus' earlier words to the Pharisees in John 8. He said to them, you are of your father the devil. You wanted the desires of your, de- of the, of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's exactly what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are after. They're after Jesus' death. They want to murder him. He said, and then he goes on, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and father of lies. So it was with Satan in the Garden of Eden, bent on the murder of Adam and Eve. He spoke lies from his own nature, desiring their fall, death, and destruction. This interaction is just another occasion, an extension of Satan's agenda. He's using here guerrilla warfare. He's using misdirection in an attempt... To try to trap and stop Jesus from accomplishing his father's will. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus will not fall to the devil's flatteries and the devil's lies. So that leads us to a confrontation. So Jesus, who has rightly perceived what's going on here, has no problem calling a spade a spade. In this case, calling a hypocrite a hypocrite. And that's what he says to them. Before giving an answer to their question, he first reveals to them that he is the knower of the heart. And he asks them, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Why are you testing me, hypocrites? He knows that this question is a loaded question. There's nothing genuine or sincere or honest about it. These individuals are not there in the position of learners, sitting at Jesus' feet, waiting for his answers that they might follow in obedience. They're waiting for him to be tripped up, and Jesus calls them out on it. From the very get-go, he says, I know what you're doing. Why are you testing me? Hypocrites. Their cover's blown. Jesus sees that their concern for righteousness is as thin as a veneer pressed upon a piece of cruddy wood. Right? He knows that it's very, very skin deep. He knows it's just a facade. And so he asks, why are you testing me? Me, You see, to test Jesus is to fail to understand a great deal about Jesus, isn't it? To presume that you are the test giver and not the test taker shows that you've got a problem from the get-go. It's like a student walking into Mr. Bailey's class, Pastor Christian's class, and sitting down in class on the first day of systematic theology, and then handing Pastor Christian a test. And saying, yes, I'd like for you to take this test. At which point... Whether or not he answered all the questions correctly, this student has messed up the relationship. He doesn't understand from the get-go what this relationship looks like. Jesus says, why are you testing me? To presume that they are the test-givers and not the test-takers is a tragic mess-up. Even though they address Jesus here as teacher, they're not coming to learn from him. They've come to test him. Also, the lack of knowledge of Jesus is seen in their futile attempt to trap Him. You know, they're not just dealing with the typical earthly teacher who might be caught in an error. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. They won't succeed in their plots of cunning because you can't outsmart Him who knows the heart and mind. All is laid before Him who not only can hear words and can hear tonal inflection and read body language out of these individuals, but he gazes into their thoughts. He knows what resides in their hearts. That's what's laid bare before Jesus. And so they show from the very get-go they don't know who they're dealing with. Their words are more true than they believe. Jesus is truth, and he spots the counterfeit instantly. And so then Jesus, in wonderful fashion, makes use of the most perfect object illustration. He asks those with him to show him the coin used in this poll tax that it be given to him. Now, understand that many Jews continue to trade with Jewish coins instead of Roman coins, not Roman currency. So it might have taken a minute for one of them to produce this. He asks, why were they doing that? Well, because of the very thing that Jesus is going to point out. Many Jews had issues with Roman currency because of what was inscribed upon the Roman currency. There was, first of all, an engraving of the emperor, which some Jews had an issue with from the outset, making no engravings at all. Some taking some of the Old Testament um, legislation in that respect. So some wouldn't do it for that reason. But then, underneath the picture of the emperor on one side, it had, had a statement which declared him to be God. And then, on the other side of the coin, he was described to be the high priest. It said literally, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, And then on the other side, high priest with a visage of the emperor sitting on a throne wearing a diadem on his head, clothed like a priest. See, on one side a visage of him, just his face and statement that he's son of a god. And on the other side, he is uh, described as the high priest and wearing this gown. All of this as a result caused many Jews to not even want to touch the currency, much less deal with the currency. And so they used copper coins. So it's interesting that Jesus asked them, show me one of those coins. <laughs> um, they, so they hand him a denarius, and at which point then he starts to look at it. Now, that in and of itself is kind of an interesting dynamic. Obviously, questions is not specifically stated in the text, but somebody had the coin, which in itself kind of brings in the question, why did he have the coin? For those who had religious scruples with even having the coin, why did they have the coin if they had such an issue with it? But here's the coin, and it's functioning as a reminder that the Romans ruled whether the Jews liked it or not. So some of the edge of the question is kind of being removed by their ability to produce a coin for Jesus to look at, showing that they had at least some participation in the government if they had one on hand. Jesus asks, whose inscription, whose image has been placed upon the coin, and they obviously say it is Caesar's. That leads us to the principle. Jesus then says this very famous statement. He says, then render. Or paying. Interesting. They ask the question, do we give to Caesar? And here, Jesus uses those slightly different words saying render or pay. It it connotes the idea of obligation. That one has some amount of obligation to pay. So you're not just giving because you like to give. You're paying because it's owed. That's how Jesus responds. So pay the things of Caesar to Caesar. And the things of God to God. This the coin is stamped as Caesar's. Jesus says, give it to him. <laughs> it's Caesar's coin, isn't it? Give Caesar his coin back. Some even see it as perhaps even having a little bit of flavor of send the blasphemous thing back to Caesar. <laughs> Some people read it that way. But whatever way you read it, he's saying pay the tax, isn't he? Why haven't they won then? Well, it's this next phrase that also combines with that that makes his answer so perfect. He says give to Caesar, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the things that are God's pay to God. Jesus answers their either-or question and exposes that it's a fallacy. Have you ever had a question that's put to you like that before? Yes or no? Blah, blah, blah. But the answer to the question, you can neither answer yes or no, because the answer is both and. And that's how Jesus answers. He says it's not a yes or no answer. It's a both and. Yes, pay the tax, but also pay unto God what God is due. Jesus' response indicates that Caesar has the right to exact a tax, his payment for his government's role in maintaining law and order and providing an atmosphere by which men can live in general peace with one another. Yet this does not ultimately nullify the fact that one's chief allegiance is to God, who is overall, and to the king, who is who he set overall, Jesus Christ. So Caesar's r- rule is limited and temporary. And in a similar sense, so are representatives and senators and governors and presidents, all of these authorities are limited and temporary. these will all day all one day come to an end, but jesus' rule will be forever, and he's never going to resign and he'll never be impeached right Jesus' rule is forever. with this statement, Jesus recognizes two divinely ordained spheres of authority. In one sphere, God reigns supreme over all. He has all authority. And among that authority that God has, He has delegated or parceled out authority in various ways among men, political governing authorities being one of those. These are not necessarily at odds with one another, is what Jesus is putting forward. But note, Jesus does distinguish between the two. Note, Caesar is not God. From Jesus' own statement, he just said, give the blasted coin back to Caesar, but give unto God what God is due. Caesar does not get worship, only God does. But give the coin back to Caesar. This reminds us of texts like Acts 5, where the disciples are challenged and told to no longer speak in the name of this Jesus. You remember what the response is? Well, should we obey God or men? When when pressed with a matter of that nature, we always go with the Lord, right? We obey the Lord in all matters in which if a civil governing authority tries to get us to do something that is expressly against God's will, we will always violate the man law in reference to God's law. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that there's a great number of laws that civil governments can put in place that aren't in violation. We might not like them, but they're not in violation of the Bible. And this is a great example for this because if there is ever a government that was pagan, in this case, even claiming titles of deity, idolatrous, and Jesus says, pay the coin to him, then certainly we can deal with our own context, can't we? In which we might not care for, and we might fight for and work toward changing some of the political structuring in our country. But nonetheless, Jesus here puts forward the idea that this is not an either-or but a both fan. And as a matter of fact, rendering honor unto God is seen in the way in which we honor governing authorities. Paul expounds on this more in Romans 13. We also saw Peter does so in First Peter. Had those read a little bit this morning. But listen to verses 6 and 7 in Romans 13. He says this, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God. That's a really interesting phrase. Servants there. The word diakonos in Greek. Deacons. They're deacons of God. Rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You see, Jesus is giving a very full answer to the question that's been posed to him. This is not mere evasion. I continue to be freshly amazed at Jesus' eloquence, you know, and, and the elegance with which he speaks he can say so much in so few words i don't have that gift you guys know that and he can say so much in so few words it was just incredible here he says give render unto caesar what is caesar's and render unto god what is god's he's not supporting political insubordination that's bare minimum going on here He would not have his ministry be reduced to some temporary political upheaval. He didn't come to just overthrow Roman rule. That's not what he came to do. And he's not going to allow his ministry to be be squeezed into that sort of definition. He came with a much greater end in mind. His mission was not something that was conflicted with Rome, but something that transcended that conflict. A conflict in spiritual realms. Because, you see, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world This was a fundamental misunderstanding that continued to happen with Jesus and the definition of what it meant for him to be the Messiah. This is one of the big reasons why Jesus is so careful about who knows him as the Messiah. Because there is so much misinformation and misunderstanding regarding what the Messiah was and what he came to do. We saw this throughout Jesus' ministry, right? Where many times Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Don't talk to people about that. And people go, well, why was he saying that? I think it's for this very reason. There's so much misunderstanding regarding what the Messiah's role was. Remember, there was a time after he feeds the I think it's after feeding the five thousand where they're trying to take him and make him king, and he retreats to the mountains away from them. Right? Because they didn't they didn't understand what the Messiah's role was. Jesus hadn't come to just overthrow Caesar and put up a temporary dominion. He came to establish an eternal kingdom in which he would bring in sons and daughters into his father's house. Apparent in Jesus' words is an exhortation that the questioners consider not merely what Caesar is to be given, this is another note to make, but also what God is to be given. You see, their concern is here, whether or not we give to Caesar. And Jesus says, render to Caesar what he's due, but give to God what he is due. Those statements bring us to a weightier consideration. What is God owed? What is God owed? You see, Jesus' audience was consumed with questions of politics, neglecting the weightier matters. Were they giving God the things that are God's? That's the bigger question. Are you giving God the things that are God's? You see, if the coin which which bore Caesar's image was to be given to Caesar, then certainly we who are made in God's image are to be given Caesar. To God. See how it works? Our very lives, our everything is due unto Him. This dual citizenship that we have, in which we are citizens of, the, of an eternal kingdom and yet find ourselves as, for most of us, right, American citizens temporarily, it's always going to bring us into some conflicts. But we must always act with first loyalty and priority to our God, who is our Creator, Sustainer, Provider, Redeemer, and Savior. He is our true king. But this great God, our king, has called us to submit to earthly governing authorities. And so out of submission to our great king, we submit to lesser authorities that he has established. Recognizing that the God who put those people in place can take them out as well. That's in his hands. Certainly being a Christian does not mean a withdrawal from the world. We're to engage it with the gospel of Christ. We're to fight for the things that God cares about. While well, making sure that our behavior is upright. And should there ever come laws or injunctions upon us that would cause us to have to neglect something that is absolutely essential to the Christian faith, then we must in those moments disobey what the governing authority is saying. But we want to make sure that when that disobedience occurs, that it's for no other reason than the gospel. You see, if we're already known to be rebels who never follow rules and never do what we're told on things that the Scriptures don't speak to, then when it comes to a matter like that, it'll just be wiped out as one of those other people. They're just rebels. That's all that they are. But if instead, out of consistent principles birthed from the Word of God, we make our stand, when those matters come to play, then we will bear witness, and we will then gladly go to jail or be killed for our faith. Christians have done that over the centuries and are still being done today there are many martyrs all over the world that are being killed maybe even in these very moments for the stand that they're making for christ in countries that are antagonistic openly and legally against him we want to make sure that if we disobey a civil authority it's by means because of a purposeful necessity of following jesus christ and nothing else Not just a political ideology, not just a preference or a kind of conviction, but a genuine matter involving our following Jesus Christ. And then in pursuing good humanitarian and civil and moral causes, may we make sure that we don't use those actions as a substitute for giving to God what is God's. There's a danger sometimes today in which, you know, even political conservatism can get into this, where... Their whole pressing life is all about trying to change and legislate Christianity throughout the nation rather than themselves living a godly life, giving unto God what he, He is due, praying for governing authorities, absolutely, but recognizing that you can't substitute life for God with just political action. And some people have gotten off track in that pursuit. This may be part of your life as a Christian, but the Christian life is certainly far more than political activism. This is a helpful corrective to us. Flaunting rebellion against governing authorities betrays a lack of respect for authorities that are established by God and under His sovereign control. Reichen says, As Christians, we belong to both the church and the state. And in both kingdoms, we have unique obligations to honor God. Although we believe in the separation of church and state, We do not believe in the separation of God and state. No matter who we are and where we are, our relationship with God is first and foremost. He is our king. And we serve at his pleasure. So we need to ask the Lord for wisdom in applying this principle. There's many a sermon that's been preached on this text with many different applications that could be drawn. But my encouragement is this, is that you ask the Lord to continue to grant you wisdom in discerning, does our obligation to civil authorities end? What is our proper role within the political structure that we have today? What is a matter over which we, we maybe should disobey? What are those things which we ought to obey and submit to? But ultimately, the church's primary work is not to gain more political influence and hope of legislating a Christian society. Rather, we're called to use spiritual resources of prayer and the word of God with acts of mercy and straightforward proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to win people's hearts for the Lord. And once they love Jesus, make no mistake about this, this will certainly have a transformative effect on all of society. If all of America, every single individual, became a Christian, genuinely a Christian, that would absolutely transform America. It absolutely would. It absolutely would. But you don't get there just by legislating morality. What people need is whether they're moral or not, they need Christ. Because we're all sinners, and we're all destined for hell otherwise. This leads us to the last point. What do we see in response to this? Point number three, the awestruck silence. There is just an awestruck silence that falls on the group. They're a shock. Jesus leaves his questioners in awe. They're amazed at him. The trap has been sprung, but Jesus isn't trapped in it. Jesus' answer called the people to pay taxes that are due to Caesar, but he must not be paid more than his due. Only God can receive the divine honor and glory that he is worthy of. So the answer leaves them dumbfounded. The accusers themselves have to walk away empty-handed. They're left with silence. I always get the picture of their you know, jaws dropping. You know, He's done it again. We thought we had him and he's done it again. And these men, refusing to repent, but couldn't object either. How can they argue with such an answer? They just depart and walk away. I hope that's not your response to Jesus when confronted with his truth to just walk away. You see, there's something even more shocking than Jesus' impeccable response to these opponents on this day. Something that should cause every jaw to drop in stunned silence. As Wright points out, underneath the debate stands a darker theme. The accusers have failed this time, but Jesus knows, and the readers of the Gospels know, that they will soon succeed. And in events to transpire days from this interaction, they will hand over not just coins bearing the false image and title of God to Caesar, but the God-man who truly bears God's image and title. In Luke 23, 2, we read this. They began to accuse him, speaking of Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, listen guys, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the King. What do they decide to do? We can't get him on record saying it, so we have no problem with lying. We'll just lie about it. They're saying, he just said not to pay taxes to Caesar when he had said nothing of the sort. He said quite the opposite. They decide that they need no proof of sedition. They'll just lie. And their desire to murder Jesus will come to pass. And when they murder Jesus, that will shock Jesus' followers. You know, the only one who's not shocked by the murder of Jesus was Jesus himself. You see, the most shocking thing of all is that Jesus came with this very purpose in mind. Much more heinous than neglecting to pay taxes to Caesar, we are all guilty of failing to give to God the things that are God's. None of us are perfect in that account. All of us have failed to give to God the things that are God's. We failed to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as a result, we stand guilty before God of an untold number of sins flowing from wicked, crafty, hypocritical hearts spewing forth hatred for God and our fellow man. We go no further than our own hearts. We know it about ourselves. If we're being honest and sincere and genuine, we are wicked traitors. We are the rebels. Yet instead of just giving us a traitor's death, as any earthly king would have done, God has offered a way of life to us. He's made provision for us. You see, what God demanded, He provided by sending His Son Jesus to die in the place of traitors and rebels. The cross by which wicked men would put Jesus to death is the very instrument by which God the Father has orchestrated our salvation. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Here we see the ultimate intersection of religion and politics. Jesus... The king of kings and the great high priest laid down his life for those who failed to give God what he was due. But what king ever dies for traitors who have lived their lives as an affront to him? That is the shock. And all of our jaws should drop. The unthinkable thing Jesus has done. He, God's sinless perfect son, died a traitor's death so that traitors could be forgiven and live as God's sons. From this stunned silence, then may our dropped jaws then have mouths that are filled with confession and repentance and expressions of faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King, and our God. May our lips be filled with songs that delight ourselves in our Redeemer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the...